You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. To Hebrews chapter 3 today, there is a motto that says this. It says, to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. That seems like an answer to a profound question on what life is about. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Christ Jesus. But it isn't some sort of catechism question. It is actually a mission statement from a university that was founded in 1636 in our country to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Christ Jesus. The goal of that university was to equip students to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live that message out faithfully in their academic life and in their social endeavor. Every diploma that they handed out to their students upon graduation had the Latin inscription that said, truth for Christ and the church. 80 years after its inception, there was a problem. This university began to drift from its mission statement. They still focused on academic excellence, but their prospects of Christian formation was lacking, to say the least. And so frustrated were some of the alumni that they gathered in a room one day to talk about their concerns, to talk about the mission drip, and that meeting led to another meeting with a wealthy philanthropist who shared their concern, and he began to finance their efforts as they began to form another university that would stay truer to the message of Christ and to the church. And so in 1718, their efforts came to fruition. It was the year that Yale University was founded. It was named after their wealthy financier and philanthropist named Elihu Yale. Yale was moved by the groans of a group of concerned alumni from Harvard University about the compromising of their foundations and their Christian ethics. And at their inception, Yale's motto was lux et virtas, which means truth truth and life. Today, Harvard and Yale are still known for their academic excellence, but neither school remembers or or, uh, resembles what their founders envisioned. A very recent president at Harvard University said, things divine have never been central to my profession or my personal life. Both schools started as a beacon of light and truth. They gloried in the church and the truth of Christ. Today, neither school reflects the very purpose of their inception. They have strayed away. They have drifted. They have proven to be unfaithful to their foundation. So as we pick up the book of Hebrews today, what we are going to read again is a consistent message that our writer gives to his little congregation that surrounds and inform, or I should say that centers around faithfulness to Jesus. He has said in the previous chapters that 
we must pay attention to what we have heard, meaning we must remember the truth that we heard, the gospel of Christ, lest we drift away. He has said that we have to fix our thoughts on Jesus, that we have considered Jesus above everything else. He has said in chapter 3 that we need to hold fast our confession, that we need to have a firm grip on the truth and the reality of Christ. Today, he has similar language. He calls us to hold on. And so as we wrap up chapter 3, our merciful writer pleads with his little congregation to stay faithful to the truth of Christ and to not be like their ancestors who once experienced the works and the wonder of God that later walked away from the Lord in rebellion of his love and his law. So let's pray and then we'll read our text together. Father, let us come before you today and let us be present here in this moment. Lord, remove from us all the distractions that our brain wants to take us to. And Lord, will you let your word shine in our hearts and our minds today. Spirit, we pray that you would do a mighty work, that you would make this alive in us, that you would move us, that you convict us and guide us and bring gladness and joy, conviction and where you need us to move. And so Lord, we humble ourselves today and come under this word we believe it is truth, it is light, and it is good. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7 to verse 11. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall not, never enter my rest. And so our author here is quoting a psalm that is ascribed to King David. It's Psalm 95. But what he is saying here is that that psalm really wasn't written by King David that it was written by the Holy Spirit. What he is reminding us in this section is the divine truth that we have a divinely inspired scripture, that men, many men, 40 to be precise, living on three different continents across 1,500 years, picked up the pen to write about the truth and the glory of God, but it wasn't them who were writing. It was the Spirit of God that flew through their minds and their hearts and and came out of their pen in inspiration to tell us who God is. It's a unified story of God that points to Jesus. And the Bible is the marvel of the modern world for its consistency and its unity and its historical accuracy. This is the joy of our believers, of, of all believers, the scripture, that we can know who God is and that this text is living and active, pressing against our hearts. But we're here in this text, we're also reminded that that same spirit is still speaking to us today. It says, as the Holy Spirit says, not said or will say, but says in the present tense. He says, so as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The same spirit that wrote those words through the pen of King David thousands of years ago speaks to our hearts today. The Holy Spirit does not put off till tomorrow what he can do today. 
And his voice comes with urgency, wooing the hearts of men and women all over this globe into his kingdom and driving those of faith into deeper love and commitment to him. But this passage would also be very well known to those who are reading it in that day. In the time of Jesus and before, every Jew would gather in the synagogue on Sabbath. And during that Sabbath meeting, they would be called into worship. And they would say these very words. They would say, today, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden yourself. The priest would say, and then the crowd would repeat it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. These words would have been repeated day in and day out, week after week, month after month, year after year. They would be ingrained in every fiber of their being. Why? Why? Because hearing the voice of God is the only priority of life. That we would desire to know him and hear from him through his spirit, through his word, through his people and his creation. And we would do that without procrastination or delay. But today, because the consequences of denying the voice of God, of not listening to the voice of God, are devastating. And our author reminds his reader of the propensity that God's people have not to listen, that you and I would not make the same mistakes. And so the historical context that surrounds Psalm 95 comes from the Exodus, where God rescues his people out of Egypt. He delivers them from a life of slavery, out of a life of bondage. He leads them away from that and then towards the land of promise, a land called Canaan, a land described as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a great place of opulence and blessing. It was a land where God's people could rest from their enemies after years of being in captivity it was a, a land where they could rest in peace with God's people, and it was a land where they could rest with the presence of God in their midst. But as we know from the story of the Exodus, that almost at every twist and turn, God's people grumbled. They complained. The food was bad. The water was scarce. The desert was too hot. They only had 3G phones. Grumble after grumble. But God is patient and he's faithful. And the day finally came where they reached Canaan. And when they reached Canaan, they sent two spies into the land. And we can read of these events in the book of Numbers. And it records that as those spies went in, they, were, they saw a powerful people, a substantial people. And they came back and they told the Israelites and the leaders what they saw. And the word records that they were afraid that God's people were afraid. They did not want to come in. They were too big. They were too powerful. Some even wished that they had died in the desert at that time. And so we remember that these are the same people that walked on dry land. Heaps of water by their side as they crossed the Red Sea. These are the same people that God miraculously provided food and water for in the desert provided, protected, improbable victory after improbable victory. They witnessed miracles and visions and signs from God. There has never been a group of people on the planet who should have believed in God more than the Israelites that came out of Egypt. Yet, moments before entering the promised land, their unbelief is seen again. Canaanites were too big. They're too powerful. Everything about their current situation seemed to contradict the truth of God, the truth of his promises, his capabilities, and his character. Despite all of the privileges as God's people, when it counted, 
They refused. They refused. It's probably me. They refused to trust in the voice of God. And they refused to remember what he did, what he has said. They refused to remember his character, his power, his faithfulness. Instead, they listened to themselves. And they revealed a heart of unbelief, a hard heart. They had followed God for all of those years, but they had never truly trusted him. You can't follow God and not trust him. And so sometimes we hear this phrase, hear the voice of God, and it has this very mystical idea to it. It kind of brings us into this thought of, of some religious experience where we're meditating and God comes in some sort of form and he speaks to our hearts and we leave with some sort of new revelation or fresh revelation and we say, oh, God spoke to me. I I heard his voice. You know, there are very few times in my life where I've ever experienced that. But that is not what this text is saying when it says, listen to the voice of God. We remember the story of the little storm-tossed church that this writer is speaking to. We remember their story, that in the area of Rome around 70 AD, they're hard-pressed from virtually every single side. Everything screams to them in their moment, be afraid. You're in this alone. Everything in that moment screams, they're too big, the world is too powerful, the world is too powerful. And the author is saying, don't be like your ancestors. Don't ignore the voice of God. Don't harden your heart. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. Remember who he is. Remember what he has said. Remember what he's done. We have to remember that when God takes us to places that don't make sense, we must remember that he took his son to another place, to Calvary. And there we heard the voice of God in his son, that in the face of brutal execution and murder, We didn't hear cries of unbelief or fear, but we heard the dying son whisper, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When life's circumstances don't make sense, when life's circumstances don't match our expectations, when everything in front of us looks grim and it screams out, it's too powerful, they're too big, don't harden your heart in unbelief, but find rest and strength in the voice of God that has always been faithful to you and persevere. We also remember that we cannot do this by ourselves, that we need each other. And that's what verse 12 says to us. In verse 12, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As he has just said, as has just been said, today if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. And so in light of these historical events in Psalm 95, the author elevates to his readers a need to care for one another, a level of care that should be exercised amongst the community that none of us would have an unbelieving, evil heart. Literally, it interprets as an evil heart of unbelief. That is the condition. That is the root of sin. He uses many different words in this passage to describe sin. He, He talks about sin as a hardening of the heart, a rebellion against God, testing God, going astray in the heart. 
He says in verse 10, not knowing God's way, an evil heart of unbelief, falling away from God, sinning, disobedience, and unbelief. Most of those descriptions are actions, but the root of those actions is an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, we don't often associate the term evil with unbelief. We like to think of evil as more commonly associated with murder and rape and genocide and the things like that. But murder and rape and genocide stem from one thing, unbelief and who God is and what he's called us to do. The root of all evil is the evil temperament of the human heart not to believe in God or believe his word and his promises. And so this is the main concern of our author, that we realize the evil disposition of the human heart and that we value the gospel, the truth of Jesus, because unbelief gives rise to hardening of hearts and rebellion against God. And if we are faithful into remembering the truth of God, he will persevere us. If we are faithful to remembering the truth, we will persevere in God's faithfulness. What is that truth? Well, the author has reminded us that Jesus is better than prophets, that Jesus is better than angels, that Jesus is better than Moses, that Jesus is better than ourselves, that Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection provides for us a redemption and a reconciliation. He saves us from our sins, so much so that, that this word says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. If we bathe ourselves in that truth, persevere in that mind, the stranglehold of our heart and unbelief will be weakened. And we are commanded to do that together, one another, to fight for one another against hardening our hearts, to encourage one another. And that encouraging requires or presupposes community. We are to encourage each other. We can't encourage each other if we don't know one another. In isolation, we are prone, like my brain is prone to think up crazy things. In isolation, we will make up crazy truths about God. YouTube is filled with crazy things about God. We need each other. We need to be in a community centered on the word of God that we can work out our salvation together, where we can give feedback to one another like, is this biblical or is this anti-biblical? There's a synergy that happens in our life when we study the word together and we learn from it. We can talk about our lives and our struggles and our vulnerabilities and say, I don't know what God's doing here. I need your help. And we can rely on each other to carry us in our doubt. That in our struggles, people can carry us when our hearts and our mind fail us. All this means is that it behooves us as individuals to seek biblical community. Biblical community centered around truth and faithfulness, not on programs, not on entertainments. We need truth that reminds us of our need for God and to make a commitment both to it, the truth, and to one another. Uh, I have said this in other words, but I think that people who bounce from place to place or church for church, as gently as I can say this, those who bounce around and are uncommitted, never settling in, are usually running from something in themselves that they don't want to face. It is only when we stop running and face the truth of ourselves that we begin to grow. And then once in community, 
we initiate relationship with one another. So often we wait for it to come to us. But when we're in our church community, we initiate relationships with one another. And if we doubt our need for his truth, our need for his people, our need for constant heart examination, let us not forget the consequences that come from unbelief. And we read this as we close the chapter. Verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those whom sin, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that he would never enter, would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The author ends this text with a series of questions. I think this is fascinating. He creates an opportunity for active listening. And in fact, you could say that the author is sort of catechizing his readers, meaning that he's instructing them towards right belief by asking questions that force them to answer truthfully. These questions show the descent of a hardened heart from hope to disbelief to disobedience. And the point that he's making to this little church is that you are not unlike these people and you need to be careful Because if the people of God that he led out of Egypt found themselves on the wrong side of God's anger because of their sin and unbelief, what about you? And what are the consequences for God's anger towards them? And the answer is no rest. Now, we're going to get into the idea of rest next week. But today, we understand that the key to entering God's rest is belief. And listen, that's where we want to be in God's rest. It is where we flourish most. And so here's the truth, that many of us in this room have had profound beginnings in the Lord. We have had profound beginnings in the Lord. We, we have made a decision to follow Jesus. And in that moment, you were full of joy and emotion at the thought that Jesus came and he rescued you and he saved you. You delighted in the Lord. You joyfully followed him. You wanted what he wanted. But ever since that moment, you have been chasing the next high the next divine experience. And very subtly, you have begun to seek God's hand and not his face. You have adapted a faith that lives in the peaks and the valleys of religious experience that resides in your feelings. You want God to make you feel good about him. You want to have a feeling about God that resembles your feeling for your dog, that resembles your feeling for your favorite mood or meal. And look, I want you to love God with all of your heart emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, obediently, but to persevere in the journey of faith. You cannot be centered on emotion. We must be focused on its unwavering truth. Spiritual experiences do not guarantee true saving faith. Only faithfulness to his voice does. Every circumstance in our life provides us an opportunity to live out what we believe, to live out what, we, what is true. And God uses every opportunity with our faith to grow us, to change us, to use us, and to image himself into the world. You know, C.S. Lewis, we reference many times, wrote a, a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in that letter, or in that book, it, it, it's, a, it's a story of an experienced demon or devil named Screwtape. 
who is instructing his young protege named Wormwood on the effective strategy for tempting the humans that are in his assignment towards damnation and unbelief. And I want to just read a piece of this book because I think it's important and we need to remember the folly of the world and the importance of today. This is what he said. He said, the enemy, and the enemy here is Christ. This is from the perspective of, a, of the demon. The enemy has guarded him from you through the first great wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despairs hardly felt as pain of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them. The drabness which we create in their lives and inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides an admirable opportunity of wearing out of a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years from prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man into the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while revealing it is while really it is finding its place in him. That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their soul from the heaven, from heaven, and building up a firm attachment to the earth. I think it's a wonderful reminder of the importance of today, of today, that we must listen to the voice today. What has God asked of us? Two simple commands, to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You could sum those up in this way. Be faithful to God and to be faithful to one another. We have made this Christian life into so much that it's not. We have centered it around emotionalism and entertainment and, and, and efforts, but it's about faithfulness. It's about faithfulness. And God promises those who are faithful to him that he will be faithful to them. And you will enter the rest of God. Let us not be like Harvard or Yale, and drift away from our foundation, our truth, the very reason of our design. Let us stand pat and true to our original intent. And I think the phrase that Harvard thought of as their mission statement is a glorious one, that we would be plainly instructed and consider well. The main end of your life and studies is to know God and Christ Jesus that in every day of our life, that we focus on his truth and nothing more, that no matter how much our expectations or our circumstances uh, affect us or our circumstances aren't what we want, that we stand true in belief in who Jesus is and what he's done for us.